We're going to be in James chapter 1 today. We're taking a a break before we get into Philippians uh, chapter 2 together coming up. So we're going to be in James chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses uh, 21 through 25. Uh, James 1, 21 through 25. Hey, before we get into God's Word, one of the things we talk about is before we talk about God, it's good to talk with God uh, together. And so we're going to take a moment, we're going to pray as we get into the Word together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you, God, for drawing us together, for drawing us into your presence. Uh, Lord, we've just praised you, and, and we said we're amazed by you, Lord. And we said we want to surrender ourselves to you, Father. Uh, we, we want to know more of your love, and we want to be in your presence and walking in your power. So we pray that you'd be working in our church family here. That you'd be strengthening us, growing us, blessing us. Especially in this time in your word, Lord, that you would strengthen us through your word. That you would draw us to know you. And Father, we pray that we would, uh, we would learn uh, what the best sermon ever is today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so today we are talking about uh, the best sermon ever. I'm not going forward for some reason. There we go. There must have been a, a blank slide there. So uh, we're talking about the best sermon ever. So uh, in general, when you get a hold of something, what quality of thing are you hoping to get? You know, you're, you're buying a new kitchen gadget or a new vehicle. You want like a shoddy thing that's not going to last very long. You go for the middle of the road, you look for the C-grade product, you're on Amazon, you're like, this one has three stars. That's a good product. I, I like a solid C with the things I'm spending my money on. No, you want, you want the best ever, right? You want the best ever. And the truth is, is believers really want the best sermon ever. If you come to church, uh, you're looking for something, right? You're, you're coming hungry, you're coming hoping to hear something that maybe builds you up or, or encourages you or helps you with an issue that you have in your life or clarifies something, and, and ultimately you're hoping to walk out maybe feeling a little bit better than you did before. Now, other people, they approach it a different way. Some people, they want a sermon that like does surgery on their heart, right? They have this, like they, they want to know what's wrong and, and how that can get fixed. And hopefully they're in a church if that's going on that they're finding out that Jesus is the one that can fix it and they're not being you know, placed with these heavy yokes that they, they need to do all of this heavy spiritual work to be good enough for God. But, but sometimes we have different ideas about what the best sermon ever is, right? And what's amazing is we tend to find churches that have our ideal church experience, right? The worship and the the people and the message. We're looking for something that matches what we desire. You know what that makes us? Americans. This is how Americans live life, right? Like we can't, and we can't escape that. We're from where we're from uh, and and we work how we work. Um, But the Bible actually has some things to say about what the best sermon ever is. Did you know that? that the Bible actually talks about what the best sermon ever is. Now, I've taken a lot of classes on my own and done a lot of reading to know my end of producing good sermons and delivering them to you. And I've got a a bit of experience doing that now. And the truth is, though, is that I can do all of the work that I can do, and the Holy Spirit can do all of the work that He can do, and it still isn't necessarily the best sermon ever because you are part of the best sermon ever happening. Did you know that? That you have a role in the best sermon ever. Because the best sermon ever is the sermon that is lived. The best sermon ever is the sermon that is lived. Now we all know that. Like we say that, we're like, oh yeah. But we can default to that place inside where we think that the best sermon ever is the one that kind of zings me in whatever way I need to be zinged, right? That, that gets a hold of me in the way that I need to be gotten a hold of that day. Uh, at that point in time, sermons basically become a carnival ride, right? And we're all going to the county fair, and we've all got our tickets to the carnival, and we all have our own favorite ride, and we hope that we ride that ride today, right? And the reality is that happens in every church every Sunday across the whole planet. I'm relatively convinced that we've got our tickets to the show, and we want the show to be the show that we like. And when it happens, we're like, this is amazing. And we tend to stay at the churches where we think that that happens on a consistent enough basis that we go, this is a good place. Because every once in a while, we just don't ride the ride, right? Every once in a while, there's like 10 to 20% of the church, and they're like, this was not my favorite ride Sunday. But last Sunday was good, and I know next Sunday's going to be okay too. I'm not convinced that that's God's best for us, though, and I'm also not convinced that that's our best for God. Now, again, we all know that inherently, uh, but the Lord wants to do some work in our heart today to help us to really embrace that and really walk with him as we are a church family. So we're going to look at James 1, and we're going to start in verse 21, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness 
and the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Amen. Amen. So we're talking about the best sermon ever. Now, we're going to start first talking about how you can receive the best sermon ever, right? Because sometimes amazing things are happening around us and we're just not there. We're just not receiving it. I remember as a teenager, um, we had a family friend over and she was going through a hard time and, and we were all having a good time. I think we were playing a board game and eating pizza and that sort of thing. And, and there was a quiet moment and she said, do you ever feel like you're a stranger in a room full of people? Boy, man, that is the type of statement that could just suck the air out of a room, right? I mean, everybody got really quiet. The adults got really serious, like, oh man, did she just say that? And I think his kids were like, what does that even mean? How can you be alone in a room full of people, right? But the reality is, is that sometimes there's things happening inside of us that keep us from connecting with the good things going on around us. And that same thing can happen to us as a church family or as people who are seeking Jesus. We can have so much going on inside of us that the good things that God is working around us and the good things God is inviting us into, we can't perceive, we can't hear, we can't understand, we can't know. And therefore, the first part of the best sermon ever is proper preparation. Now, getting the most out of any sermon requires proper preparation on your part. Did you know that? That you can come prepared for a sermon or for church in a way that causes you to have greater impact from that sermon, from that church service than you've experienced before. I think that if you think about this, this is fairly intuitive or natural for us to understand. See, we're like uh, sponges in a way, right? We can hold on to so much information and we can't really take any more in. Now, there are conditions in which a sponge cannot receive any more, right? What are some of those conditions? The dry sponge, right? Have you ever had a dry sponge? You like throw it in the bucket. What does it do? It just floats there. It's not taking anything in. It's not ready to receive something. It absolutely needs to receive, but it's not in a place where it is ready to receive. What other types of sponges are not ready to receive anything? The full sponge. That's exactly right. The sponge has got so much going on that it cannot receive any more. And that sponge is usually leaking whatever is inside. Now, we've talked about this before, that we tend to leak what's inside of us. We're like sponges in that way. And the Lord really desires you to hold on to him, to be filled with him, and to leak his types of things everywhere. But the reality is, is that as sponges, we tend to pick stuff up along the way and during the week, and then that starts to take root in us, and then we start to leave that around. And so we're leaving kind of a mixed trail where we're like some Jesus things, some Jesus love, and then also some like preoccupation and some worry and some of my new favorite song and some of the movie I'm hoping to go see. And so we get all this going on inside, and we get to church, and that's all there still. And so we want to prepare the sponge that is us to receive. Now James describes this. James is very... Uh, practical, if you will. He's a rubber meets the road sort of a, an apostle. And so he says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. This, our culture loves it when the church talks about filthiness and overflow of wickedness. These are words that come inherently with almost a sense of condemnation, right? As if like Jesus is coming to your life with white gloves on and he's going to go to all the doors and see if you've dusted properly. Your inner house is filthy, it's overflowing with wickedness. You need to get this place together or I'm not hanging out with you. That's not what James is talking about at all. James is not walking in condemnation with you. What he's saying is that you can be so full of other stuff that you can't receive what God has for you. 
And let's be honest, some of the stuff that we can overflow with isn't so good for us. So we need to clean up the filthiness. Now this word filthiness, you remember when you were a kid and your mom or your dad would walk into your room and they'd say something like, this room is filthy. And then you'd walk into your room and you'd be like, are we in the same room, mom? This is fine. I mean, the pile of Legos, that's good. I'm going to wear those socks tomorrow. I'm just getting in that bed. I don't know why it has to be made. The floor is dirty, but I, I figure if I vacuum every six months, it's probably okay, right, Mom? It's just talking about this dirtiness of life that happens, right? Like You probably have to clean your house occasionally if, if you have one, and, and, and you like having a clean house, and, and yet for some reason, we don't recognize that we need to clean our inner selves sometimes. That we can collect dust and cobwebs and detritus and busyness. And so we need to take some time. And we need to kind of clean ourselves a little bit. And just recognize that some of the things that are hanging out in our minds are not wonderful. Some of those things are absolutely neutral, right? They're just pine needles on the floor of your soul and you need to sweep them up. But some of those things can be downright terrible and dirty too, right? I mean, sometimes my kid tracks things in the house. It's very easy to clean up. And sometimes he tracks things in the house and it's not so easy to clean up. And sometimes I do that. You know, I've been working in the garage and I walk into the house and I'm leaving greasy footprints on the floor. That's a, I need to clean that up. It's going to spread. There are things inside like that too. Some things are easier to clean up than others. Some things are easier to handle than others. Some of those things come from other people, and some of those things come from ourselves. So we live in a culture where offense is kind of a currency presently. If you're an offended person, you have a lot of power, you get to declare to other people, that is offensive, I am offended by you. That's kind of dangerous, because offense is actually really hurtful. What we're really saying is, I'm really hurt, and when hurt becomes currency, you don't want to give that up, right? Like, I, I like holding on to cash. I like my bank accounts being full. And if my social bank account requires hurt, that's dangerous for me, that's dangerous for you, and it's dangerous for everybody around us. And what that means is that sometimes in our back pocket, we've got these cards to play, cards of past hurt. That's not so good. These aren't cards I really want in my deck, but our culture's telling us that we need them. Now, this plays out in relationships with the people around us. Maybe you're in a dating relationship or you're in a marriage or a friendship where somebody keeps pulling out this card and they're like, hey, you hurt me this once, remember? Or, hey, I had this bad experience this week. You need to really give me a break. I need some room. I'm offended over here. The problem is, is there's never going to be healing there when we're committed to using the card thinking that it's going to do us some sort of good. It's not doing us any good. Holding on to it isn't helping us at all. And so this is a type of dirt that we can have inside. And Jesus says, I don't want you to have this thing. Let's get that cleaned up. I've got a remedy for this. It's called forgiveness. And it's not forgiveness that's based on the other person's ability to not hurt you again. Let's be honest. People hurt each other sometimes, right? It's actually based on my forgiveness for you. See, the cross is not just the remedy for your everlasting life. The cross is your model for forgiveness, Jesus says. He says, I want you to forgive as I have forgiven you. And if you have faith in Christ, how have you been forgiven? Does God mete out the forgiveness a little bit at a time, like an allowance? He's like, it's Monday. It's new forgiveness day. I'm going to give you five more forgiveness bucks, right? Make sure that lasts all week. How full is the forgiveness of Christ? It's perfectly full. It's absolutely complete. It's abundantly flow, full. His, his grace is sufficient for us. It's beyond our weakness. Jesus, it says in the Bible that Jesus' sin was, a, or Jesus' sin, Jesus' death was once for all sin. It was a complete package. He forgave instantly at the cross. Everyone, right? And so he even forgave you before you sinned. He even forgave you before you sinned. I know some of you feel old, but none of you are 2,000 years old, right? Like you're just not. Your wrinkles aren't that deep. You haven't collected enough dust in your life yet. Jesus' death was before you came. He chose to forgive you before you existed on the earth. In fact, it says in the word that God chose Christ's death for us before the foundation of the world, before anything else happened. God decided to forgive in advance all offense. And so this is just one type of dust 
one type of dirt, one type of wickedness, right? But there are other things that can be profoundly unhealthy. Now, I'm not a pastor who says that you need to get rid of all of your music that doesn't mention Jesus, right? Like, it's okay to listen to Mozart, and, and it's probably okay to listen to Eminem even, right? But sometimes, sometimes we listen to things or watch things. We realize, this isn't so good. There have been some times where I've been singing a song or a song comes on the radio from when I was a teenager and I crank it up and I'm listening and my kids are in the car and then I crank it down. And then we're finding a new station because I'm like, as it turns out, this is trash. I liked trash before and I don't like trash anymore, right? And so we, sometimes it's the raccoons, that's right, that's for something for the raccoons. We'll give it to the trash pandas at that point in time. So we we know this, and yet sometimes we keep things in our lives that are unhealthy for us. Sometimes we make viewing choices and listening choices and doing choices that are not very good. And James is saying, hey, when God is speaking to you, and you've got this dirty things, these dirty things hanging around with you, and, and you're not cleaning it out, you're not going to receive the, what God has for you, because he has something better for you than that thing in your life. And that thing is literally taking up territory in your soul. And God wants that territory for himself. He wants you to be maximally effective for him. This is why Paul says in Ephesians, don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil territory or an opportunity, it's translated sometimes. And so James is talking about clear out the territory for Jesus. Let's make room for Jesus in your life is what James is getting at. And then he says, and the overflow of wickedness. Any King, King James only fans in the room? Or not King James only, but King James people, you don't have to be King James only. It's great. King James is a wonderful translation, very, very uh, fruitful language in there, and generations. That's their Bible, right? In the King James, I love it. It says the superfluity of naughtiness. The superfluity of naughtiness. This sounds like the second album from a bad girl band in the late 80s, right? The superfluity of naughtiness. Uh, it's not talking about overflowing wickedness, right? And this is where we can become confused and walk in so much condemnation. You know, when, when someone tells you, you are just overflowing with wickedness, it sounds really terrible. It sounds like a trash can that nobody's attended to in a long time, and then you realize that that's describing you. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the stuff that is inside of you is going to come out from you. What's going on in here is going to happen out here eventually. This is why Jesus says that you speak from the overflow of your hearts. The internal attitudes become the external examples. The internal seeds become the external fruit. You are like a garden that God is tending to. He wants good things in you, and he wants good things coming out of you. And he knows that if you're going to have good things coming out of you, it's because you have good things in you. And so he's saying, hey, let's also lay aside that overflow of wickedness. Let's recognize that when there's things happening from me that are not good, that it means there's something going on inside of me that isn't good. And let's see that until that's dealt with, I might not be receiving very much else from the Lord. It's one of these preoccupation things. I remember uh, early in my faith walk, I had some relational problems with some people that were really important in my life. And they were massive, life-shattering relationship problems. It was not a fun season. And every time I would go to church, that is what I dealt with the Lord in. That is what I dealt with the Lord in. There were sermons happening then. There was music happening then. But the only thing that was happening between me and the Lord was this overflow of wickedness. I had attitude issues. They had attitude issues. I needed to forgive. They needed to forgive. And so every time I met with the Lord, my soul and the Holy Spirit are going, this thing needs to be dealt with, which meant that I couldn't receive the most excellent sermons that were given that day. Now, praise the Lord, when we have this thing going on, he's not like, I'm going to put you in holy timeout until you get your act together, right? He's, he's not like that. He's, I'm going to meet with you about this, but this is the topic of conversation for us today. These things that are coming out of you that aren't healthy, which means that you're hearing me talk, and what's going on is you're either wrestling with the Holy Spirit and hopefully submitting to him so that this thing is being transformed inside, or 
you're doing other things, like you're developing distractions. Is he really wearing that shirt today? He, that, that's not a very good shirt. I've never noticed that he has his S's carry on too long. That lady really should dye her hair. The root show isn't working out so well, right? I didn't realize that guy is as thick this way as he is this way, right? Like we start getting distracted with all of these other things because we would rather observe what's going on out here and find flaw there than let the Holy Spirit expose the flaws that are going on in here. And this is a strange form of pride. The next strange form of pride that can happen with this overflow of wickedness is shame. You know that shame is actually a twisted form of pride? Because what it is, is that my faults are so bad that they define me completely, and I'm just bad. I, I don't think the Lord looks at any human that way. I don't think the Lord, I want to say that really clearly, I don't think the Lord looks at any human that way. Because he made that human, and his son died for that human, and he wants to redeem and save that human. And so when we walk around in shame, and we just declare, I'm bad, what we're saying is, I'm so horrible that God could never save me. I'm so horrible that I can't receive transformation through his power. I'm so horrible that how I am defined forever is horrible. And we're rejecting God's definition for us. And we're rejecting the Holy Spirit's work for us inside. And so James is saying, you've got to get rid of all these things. You need to clean up your mind so that you're ready to receive. You need to let the Lord work in your life so that you're ready to move forward, right? Has anybody bought a lot here in order to build on? And it was like forested, and you get those lovely blackberries and all that salal and then the other things that grow. Isn't it wonderful where we live? And you go to clear the lot and you take down the trees and you want to have grass. What do you need to do? You got to get all that other stuff out of there, right? Like you got you to take care of that. Can you just trim it down real low and plant your grass and it works? No. What do you have to do? You got it like root canal, right? Like it's time for a root canal for my yard. I am going to absolutely rip everything out. Now, if we do this on our own, it's like we're just cutting the plants short and we're hoping the seed of the word that the Lord spreads somehow will grow and overtake the plants. Is that going to work? Not in a minute. So what do we actually need? We need the Lord to come into our lives and he is the one who's going to remove these things. He is the one who's going to help us clean this stuff up. Because if we do it on our own, it's not going to last very long. It's going to be clean for a minute. We need to invite the Lord into these places. Inside. We say, Lord, I keep getting these anxious and distracted thoughts when I'm listening to the word in church. And I need you to come in and help me focus. I want to listen to you and hear you. And so I just want to acknowledge my anxiety and I ask for you to help me to focus right now. Lord, when we're singing and when we're worshiping, I'm getting distracted by these things. And I'm, I'm not actually professing what the song is saying i'm just saying the words and i'm thinking other stuff lord this is my favorite song and i know it so well and i'm happy to sing the tune but i'm not recognizing the words that are going on there right there's there's songs that we know in church and we know them so well you know i surrender all all to jesus i surrender all the groceries i'll get on tuesday and I forgot I need to get my car checked out because that engine light is on. And I sure hope my husband remembers to fill up the gas on Wednesday. I surrender all. Right? And so we can get all of these things going on in our minds. And we need to invite the Lord to work in us so that we're focusing on Him. And I just I have to let you know, our culture is training you for distraction. Our culture is training you for distraction. It's, it's amazing. Commercials were 30 to 45 seconds when I were, was a kid. I don't have patience for a seven-second commercial now. Why is that? Have the commercials gotten worse? I don't know. I, I mean, genuinely, I don't know. I look back at some of the commercials that I see in recorded television from the 80s and 90s, and I'm like, they said that? I was interested in that, right? I don't think they're worse. I think there's something in me where I, I don't have the ability to focus for long enough. People are talking to me, and I'm like, come on, get to the point, get to the point, get to the point. And what's crazy is I love people, and I like listening to people, but there's something in me where I have about this much bandwidth in life, aside from the things that I'm really, really interested in, that is not driven by anything important. It's just arbitrary interest, right? So we need to ask God to expand our focus, to expand our ability to listen. You know, it, it's been said 
that the new generations coming might not be able to listen to a sermon that's longer than 15 minutes. Okay, you know, we can meet, we can meet people there, but is that really going to work, right? Is that, is that really going to present information and give you time to meet with the Lord, give you space to contemplate and move forward? Is that going to reach everybody in the room? Or is it just going to lay truth out there and hopefully people are willing to eat it? I, I don't know. It's, it's a challenge for the church to figure out. It's a challenge for pastors to figure out. At the same time, I think we need to embrace the truth that maybe our attention needs to be expanded. Maybe we need to become willing to listen longer and better than we're listening to. And this is what James is getting at. Let's set aside this dirt, the simple ideas from the world that really don't have anything to do with how the Spirit of God works so that we're ready to receive and connect with the Spirit of God. And he gets to the next point. Getting the most requires submissive reception. Getting the most requires submissive reception. Now, here we are again into a, another cultural problem because we do not like the word submit unless if we're doing mis, mixed martial arts, right? That's the appropriate time to submit. You have beat me, I submit, right? But when we talk about submission in relationships, that doesn't go so well. We're really into our own personal rights. We like to get things the way we want them, and we don't want other people to be over us. We all want our boss to be our best friend, not our boss. We all want the people around us to be our friends, not our authorities. We want our pastor to be our friend. We don't want him necessarily to be the pastor all the time. Thank you for the thoughtful advice, pastor. I will think about that. Appreciate you taking time to tell me how to live my life. I mean, thank you, right? <laughs> we don't love to submit. But if we don't love to submit, that means that when we hear the sermon, what we're picking through is what do I like and what do I not like? We become like kids at their parents' dinner table. I, I don't like green beans, mom. You, you just ate green beans yesterday. You told me they were your favorite. I was wrong. I was thinking of jelly beans, right? Like, it, 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 parents, what do you do then? Well, this is the food I have for you, and it will be the food for you the next meal, right? And you'll get this. You'll figure out that you can eat the green beans. You know, you're going to work through this. Sometimes the Lord needs to do that in our lives. He keeps presenting this. I'm just waiting for you to listen. I'm just waiting for you to listen. I'm going to walk with you and wait for you to listen. Excellent listening, getting the most out of a sermon, requires submissive reception. James says this, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls and receive with meekness. Meekness has a bad reputation that it didn't deserve. I think it's because instead of looking things up, we think what that sounds like and we go with that. It really sounds like receive with weakness. Receive with weakness. You're never going to pick up men's journal and it's going to say, women want meek men. Seven steps to meekness this week that'll get you a date by next Friday, right? Not happening. Vogue. Meek is in. Gentle as a lamb this spring, right? It's because we don't understand meekness. This concept of meekness in the Bible is connected to horse racing. Is horse racing a really weak sport? You go to horse racing and you expect people to be picking dandelions and blowing bubbles in the infield. No, it's, it's pretty aggressive, right? I mean, what is this animal that these people are on? It's huge, right? It's measured in hands, which is kind of odd, but there are horses that their shoulders are where my shoulders are, right? And they, they weigh as much as small trucks. And then what do they put on those horses? Giant men to rein them in? No, these tiny guys. And how do these tiny guys rule over these horses? Whoosh! Right? They got this little thing, and they got this thing working out, and the horse knows to ride, and good jockeys don't beat their horses, right? And yet there's this relationship of submission. Who has all the power for real in that horse race? The horse. Why does it work out? The horse is willing to go. Have you seen a horse not willing to go with the person who's supposed to be in charge of it? Does that ever work out for the person who's supposed to be in charge? No, you got to work with that horse for a little longer. Let's get some meekness in you, buddy. I know, lady, you're going to work this out. You want to go back to the barn for the alfalfa right now, but we got another half mile of riding to do. we got 17 more barrels to go around. You know, whatever it is, you've got to train that animal for, for meekness, not for weakness. You don't want a weak horse in the races. You want the strongest horse in the races, but you want the strongest horse that's under the right authority. God wants you to be a strong horse. 
He wants you to have strength and vigor and power and authority and knowledge and grace upon grace so that your life is a successful spiritual life. And the first step to that really happening is submission. Is submission. Saying, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. Not my drive, but your drive. Not my desires, but your desires. So shape my will and shape my drive and shape my desires so I can walk with you and go in your ways. Jesus was meek. Remember he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, as we call it, and he was riding in on what? A colt, a young foal of a donkey. He rode in as the prince of peace. He was gentle and peaceful. That very next day he went to the temple. What did he do at the temple? He cleared that baby out. He said, this is not right what you're doing. This is supposed to be a house of prayer, not a house of commerce. Take your money changing, take your animals, and get out of here and let the people into God. Was he just, you know, guys, dad says that this is bad. I'm going to need you to leave by next Tuesday. I'm going to come and check on you, okay? No, he's turning over tables. He was driving animals out with a cord. I have a feeling his voice might have gotten louder than we anticipate Jesus' voice getting. I have a feeling that his message may have felt harsh to the people who received it. They probably didn't forget it for a little while. How about Moses? This is Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. That he was meek. He went in to see Pharaoh. You know, I have a feeling that over time, Pharaoh learned that Moses, while being quiet and unassuming, was not a weak man. He was a meek man. Pharaoh, God says to let my people go. If you do not let his people go, this bad thing is going to happen to you. You won't like it. I'm not going to let them go. I'm sorry to hear that, Pharaoh. We'll see you next Wednesday. Goes, Pharaoh calls him back. The water turned to blood. I didn't like that. I will let the people go. Okay, well, if you don't let them go, then this thing, Moses was not weak, he was meek. He didn't go in there and beat Pharaoh up. He didn't go in there and spit on Pharaoh and call him names. He delivered the message with the strength and authority that the message was supposed to be delivered in. God wants you to be meek, not weak. He wants you to receive his word in meekness, in a willingness to listen to him. He wants your power to be under his control. Now this next part I love. So we're receiving it with meekness. And then it says the implanted word. The implanted word. That means he knows that the thing that they need is already inside of them. It's already inside of them. When you receive Christ, something changes in your life. Now, I'm going to define this term when you receive Christ, because some of us might know. Uh, receiving Christ is a sort of a Christian slang for meaning putting your faith in Jesus and recognizing who he is, and believing his death and resurrection for you, and asking him for his everlasting life, which is a gift that he gives to those who believe, right? So that's receiving Jesus. And what's amazing is when you receive Jesus, Jesus also receives you, and you're transformed spiritually in this moment. The Bible says you're spiritually reborn, and you become a brand new creation. And then Ephesians says this wild thing, all of God's blessings, all of heaven's blessings are for you and you have received them. The Bible says wild things to people who don't know maturity and faith yet. It says you don't need anybody to teach you because you have the Holy Spirit, which by the way makes us pastors go crazy sometimes because it sounds like you have license to do whatever you want. But what it's actually saying is that if you stop and think about it, if you stop and listen to the Holy Spirit, you already have the answer from him. The truth is not out there anymore. The truth is in here because the one true living God is in your life. And if you learn to listen to him, you've got the truth and you don't need anybody else to teach you. Now, unfortunately, we're not all perfect at listening to God. Unfortunately, that's an amen, right? Unfortunately, we get distracted. Our, our sponge gets full of other things and we, we need other people to help us see this. We need time for the Holy Spirit to work. So we have sermons and we have songs and we have Bible studies and we have devotions and we have all of these things to lead us forward and, and grow. But the Word is already implanted in you. It's already a part of you. 
It's there. Let it work. Continue to receive it. Then he says this, which is able to save your souls. James is all about trials. He's talking about what do we do in life's most difficult moments? How do we handle trials successfully? Do you have difficult moments in your life? Have you had trials come that are difficult, that press you to the full? Me too. There are these lies that exist in the Christian community, like God will never lead you to more than you can handle. Man, I have not found that to be true. So either he's not in charge or that's a lie. I'm banging the second one, right? Like that's absolutely a lie. God often leads us to way more than we can handle because he can handle it and that's what we need to learn. And so in these trials, we can handle them wisely or we can handle them foolishly. And handling them wisely means handling them with the Lord and handling them foolishly means handling them on our own. And so James is talking about the teaching of God that's going to save your life in the trials. The Bible rarely says save your souls in a way that is like this uh, tales from the crypt, you know, uh, now I lay me down to sleep sort of thing. You, you remember that prayer when you were a kid, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That is like out of a horror movie, right? Like little kids, you're going to bed, you're like, you might not wake up tomorrow. Better ask God to get your back, right? In a way, that's kind of good. We're teaching kids that they need salvation, but we're not really telling them what salvation's all about. We're not like, and so you're going to put your faith in Jesus, and he's going to shepherd you through eternity. you got nothing to worry about. Instead, the kid's going to bed. My soul? You're going to take it? I'm going to die? It's not, it's not where it's at, right? And so when the Bible's talking about save your souls, it's actually talking about saving your life, delivering you from trial, pulling you from the pit of hell that sometimes we can experience as we go through difficulties in life. And so this implanted word that is coming into you has the power to save you when you listen to it, when you submit to it. It has the power to transform your marriage, has the power to transform your work, has the power to transform your inner life, has the power to transform your finances, has the power to transform your retirement. Anything that you're facing, God is able to pull you through and he is able to work in that to bring about better things than you anticipate, imagine, or ask for. It's the implanted word which is able to save your very life. And then he continues talking about another step in getting the most. Getting the most requires obedient doing. Getting the most requires obedient doing. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Have you ever forgot important groceries in your car before? You got all the bags but one. It's like Wednesday dinner, you went shopping on Sunday. You're like, where's the steak? And why does my car stink? We can do this with the word of God. We can hear it, but we can forget to do it. James says you receive the most when you do it and not just hear it. But we have a preoccupation with hearing it. We like to hear the word more than we like to do it. We like it when the sermon makes us feel good. We like it when the songs seem powerful and we sense the Holy Spirit. But we walk out of those doors and we lose that sense. Was he only working when you were in the red chairs with the teal carpet with coffee stains? Is he only working when the pastor's babbling for a little too long? Is he only working when the chords are played just right and the note is held perfectly and your eyes sweat a little bit because it's just so good? No, he's working all the time, right? And this doing aspect is what carries it forward. This doing aspect is what takes the groceries home. This doing aspect is what strengthens your soul. Absolutely, you need to receive. Absolutely, you need to hear. Absolutely, you need to get the cobwebs and the dust and the dirt out of the way so that the Lord can work. But then you carry it with you, not being a hearer only, but a doer. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Now, they didn't really have good mirrors then. Did you know that? Mirrors are relatively recent invention. Mostly they had like polished hunks of metal and stone. And so you got like a general idea about what your face is, but not very good. And so this idea of the mirror is interesting because he's saying you're, you're going to see naturally what's going on, but God has something better for you. He has this spiritual mirror for he observes himself and he goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Now I've heard this preached two ways. They say the word is the mirror and it shows you just how messed up you are. And we're all really messed up, terrible beings. 
God loves you anyways. Let him change you after you die. You're going to be horrible this whole life, but work really hard, and you'll probably get a little better. Maybe, right? I'm obviously playing my hand a little bit here. Because I think the word that is implanted in us and the mirror that is the word are really similar. We're looking into the truth of who God is. We're looking into the holy calling and our identity in Christ. We're looking into the truth of what God says about you. And you're remembering that and that's overtaking your life. You're learning that you're safe in Christ. You don't have anything to fear that God's going to take care of you. You're learning that God's grace defines you. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody. You don't have to be anxious or afraid that that your identity is no good because you're a child of God. God looks at you with delight and love, and that defines you more than any word that that anyone else can say about you. The mean things your neighbor or your best friend said, they're nothing compared to the true things that God has said about you. It's teaching you that God is most glorious and that life is best lived basking in the wonder and beauty of our Savior and the power of the Holy Spirit, right? All of these things are washing over us, and James says... Don't walk away and forget that. Don't lose the best part of life by forgetting what God says about you and taking on some other thing that's nowhere near as good as what God's truth is for you. So hold on to what God has for you by obeying what he says in your life. This has to do with thinking and our internal attitudes and it has to do with doing what plays out in our life. And so he talks about this in three different capacities. He says... The best sermon requires obedient doing in the way that you speak. Obedient doing in the way that you speak. He says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious, which doesn't have the same connotation, thinks that the way of his life, the rule of his life is good and holy and right and comes from God. So you think you are an awesome, mature Christian? You think you're a perfect person? Well, let's talk about how you talk. Let's talk about the words that come out of your mouth. Is your tongue unbridled? When somebody makes a mistake, do you let them know that they are worse than the mistake that they just made? When you're telling a story, do you exaggerate? Do you use those four-letter adjectives that everybody loves so much in their, in their sentences right now? Or do you have a better vocabulary than a truck driver from 1972? Do you speak in a way that glorifies God? If you don't bridle your tongue, then you're deceiving your own heart. Your way of life is useless he says so be a doer in the way that you speak speak things that give life let your speech be seasoned with grace like salt that gives everything flavor let your words bless the people around you and not curse them james talks about that later right he says the tongue is really dangerous and if your tongue is out of control it's like a forest fire it's like a poisonous river it's not going to lead to life it's going to lead to death and destruction And he says, getting the most requires obedient doing in the way that you visit. The way that you visit, that sounds really strange, right? In the way that you visit. Well, the the New King James says this, pure and undefiled religion, the best way of life before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. It's to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Now, why do people forget about orphans and widows? Why do people forget about them? Just to be rawly honest, you're not going to get anything from them. And every time you go visit, you know what you're going to find out? They need more than you can offer. If you are a widow or an orphan, I love you. I love you. But you have a lot of needs in life. And that's okay. And that means that sometimes people start avoiding you. Now, I don't mean this as a downer for you because it's not just you. There's all sorts of needy people in the world. And what happens is that we tend to start avoiding the people that we know are the most needy because we feel inadequate and we become frustrated and we become disgruntled and we stop receiving them and visiting them. But let me ask you something. What do you offer God? What, what do you really offer God? Because I know what I offer God. And it's often an earful. And it's often my belly aching. And it's often my complaints. And then it's my wishes. But you know what? God gladly receives me. Because my door's always open to me. In fact, the Psalms tell us to pour our hearts out to God. Let Him know our misery and complaints. Lament before Him. Weep before Him. Tell Him how bad it is. Because He wants to receive your hurt to give you healing. He wants to receive your anxiety to give you peace. And He knows if you don't give it to Dad, then it's going to get really bad inside. 
We remember that God visits us, and we don't really have a lot to offer God. He's a lot bigger than us. He doesn't really need a whole lot from us, but he loves us. See, we forget that it's not how needed you are that makes you important and special. We have a broken economy, and we measure things poorly. Because what we don't realize is that those widows, those orphans, those needy people, God says he's most near them. God says his love is most powerful towards them. See, that's the problem, is that we often look at things from only a human perspective. We need to look at these people around us from a divine perspective. And so if you were the orphan and you're the widow and you're hearing me say, people avoid you because they think you're needy, you have to wipe that away and you have to remember that God says he needs you and he loves you and he cares about you. And you need to let that love define you, not the words of the people around you. But then as a church family, you know what we need to do? We need to develop the spiritual priorities that show those people that they are loved, that they are wanted, that God's going to do big things in their life, and that even when all of their needs aren't met that they think they need, that God is sufficient, and that godliness with contentment is means of great gains. We need to recognize that those of us who appear the poorest often are the spiritual richest people, and those that appear to have it all together are often walking in spiritual poverty. And so James says, your visiting exposes your internal value system and your economy. And the way that you love demonstrates the way that you understand love. And so this visiting thing actually is this loving thing. Do you love enough to go out of your way for people who can't offer you a thing? Do you love enough to sacrifice your good for the good of another? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus came to earth, and what did the earth give him? It's sin. He took it on purpose. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The perfect one of heaven came down and walked with us because he loves, because he desires to bring good things. And so that's the way of our visiting. We need to walk like Jesus did. We need to visit and love others the way that Jesus did. And then James says, getting the most requires obedient doing in your whole motivation. That last phrase, the next part of the best walk is to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, sadly, we're really into external, exp external expression and how we look more than we are to internal transformation. And so when we think keep oneself unspotted, what we mean is don't run around in the mud puddles of life. Don't get all dirty and muddy and let these external things like impact how you look. That's, that's not it at all. James is about the heart. The Lord is about the heart. The Spirit works inside before He works outside. This spotting from the world is spotting inside. It goes back to that dirt that you've got to clean out. It's that dirt going away. It's not letting that in to begin with. It's walking with the Spirit. In Romans, Paul says, the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace in Christ Jesus. The mindset of the Spirit is life and peace in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the spots in your mind that start thinking about the broken ways of living again. When we revert to who we were before Christ instead of walking in the new way of living that we have right now. James is saying, this is how you receive the most. Now, this is honestly a very challenging paradox. It reminds me about how in Proverbs it says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. I'm... I, you start by starting? I, I don't even know where to begin, right? You, you feel like a guy on the first day, the first day on the job. You're watching everybody else going, I can't do, I can't do what you're doing. How, how do you make a burrito that fast? Why, why, why is your coffee always looking so perfect? Every time I pound in a nail, it, it bends. I lose all the fish on the line. What do I do about this? You, you've got no information to do the thing that you're asking to do. And so the ones who seem to have seem to get more. And the ones who don't seem to have, they just get a little bit. Well, it's because that's all you can receive. It's okay to start where you are. It's okay to be at the very beginning of this where you're going, Lord, it's, it's dusty in my brain, and I think I let some yuck in. I, I don't even know how to define it, but I, I remember when I started, when I started doing this thing, it seemed okay, but now I'm realizing that it wasn't so good, and, and I don't want to do this anymore. Now, and now I have a bad habit that I can't escape, so help me to escape it, God, and work in my life. It's okay to start at the beginning, to not be at this place where you're at the end, and you can go, I'm not spotted by the world anymore. Because James is describing a process. James is describing the process of spiritual maturity. 
And he says, when you're walking with the Lord, you get more from the Lord. And so don't expect to get a lot from the Lord if you're not going to walk with him. Don't expect to receive when you're already full. Empty yourselves of the things that's keeping you from knowing God, and you'll receive more of God. Ultimately, what James is saying is the the best sermon is the sermon that you live. It's not not the sermon that you hear. It's not not that that it makes you feel special or, or gives you that relevant new information or has a metaphor or a joke that you just can't wait to explain to somebody else. It's it's the sermon where you meet with God, where he works in your heart, and you walk away and you live differently because there's been genuine spiritual transformation inside. The best sermon is the sermon that you live. And that's when church becomes healthiest. And that's when we walk best. Because that's where me and God meet. That's where you and God meet. It's this place where we come and we're actually connecting with the Lord, not the experience. We're actually receiving from the Lord instead of just going, that was a nice moment. We're actually letting the Lord in and inviting him in so that he goes with us out. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just talked about the the best sermon and how to receive Father, the, the reality is, is that each of us has stuff in our minds, stuff in our inner selves that, that you would define as not good, that you say is dirt that has nothing to do with me. And we know that, Father, because we don't overflow in every moment with Jesus' perfect love. And so we invite you in, Holy Spirit. We want you to be transforming us and working within us. We pray, Father, that you would reveal to us the things that you want us to let go of to receive more of you. And we ask, God, that you would give us the humble courage that it takes to step into that. Because, Lord, sometimes we're weak, and we can agree that that's not right, but we don't have the power to change it. And so we pray that you would empower it to change us. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to continue to receive the implanted word, what you have spoken to us, the truth that you have given us, the revelation of the Holy Spirit, the power of your word in our hearts, Lord. We want to receive from you in meekness, And so help us to submit to you. Help us to not seek our own understanding, but your understanding. Change our desires, Lord. Change our vision so that they're visions and desires that include you and desire you first and foremost. And Father, help us to obey. Lord, it's easy to obey for a moment, but I know personally, God, it's hard to remain in obedience in some of the things that you've called me to. So we pray, God, that you would give us patient endurance that we would know and walk with Christ in such a way that we would have obedience in our speaking, in our loving, in our motivations, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.